0: Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes and today I'm going to be discussing drafting around caves and multicolored decks which are not necessarily the same thing but they're related ideas uh, in Lost Caverns of Ixlon. As always the notes are available to follow along for uh, limited guru and above level patrons of patreon.com slash drafting archetypes at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. I often look at like 17 lands stats for the archetypes i'm talking about and talk about like how they fit into the format and stuff and then sometimes i reference 17 land stats to figure out like which cards are successful in the archetypes and uh stuff like that i'm not going to be doing any of that this time this is just going to be about kind of doing my own thing because i don't feel like the aggregate 17 lands users do any of this stuff justice and there's no aggregated data that really helps with any of this stuff so this is just going to be a discussion of what i know or think or whatever about how what kinds of stuff you need to be thinking about when drafting in this space so the two big questions when drafting multicolored decks fundamentally just in any format are which spells do you want to cast and how are you going to cast them those are kind of like the two main points that i'm going to be discussing So starting with which spells you want to cast, this is a high synergy format where like most of the colors have very heavy themes that play well with some other color, but don't necessarily play well with all the other colors. And that means that there's not like a ton of incentive to play a five color deck because it's hard to get cards from all five colors to like interact cohesively that said there are some reasons and every color at least has some cards maybe at high rarity that you might want to splash in a deck if like mana cost were not an issue but you want to be really really careful so in general if you're playing a deck with multiple colors like three or more you're generally not playing a very aggressive deck. More colors and control kind of go hand in hand because it's generally going to, like, the fact that you're playing more colors is going to slow you down in some way, and that's going to not support an aggressive strategy. Well, it is going to give you access to more powerful cards in the draft, and so if you can get the game to go long enough, The fact that you like have done the work to have these extra colors means that you'll usually be able to like overpower an opponent in a long game. So the question is, what sort of end game are you building toward and what kinds of powerful cards are you trying to support? And how many different kinds of powerful cards can you support in a single deck? So where you're going to run into issues are, I guess, like looking at specific examples of strong things that you could be building toward, but that require some amount of, like, deck space, sometimes a high amount of deck space to properly support. You could have Cave matter stuff. You could have uh, Chupacabra Echo, which would want you to have uh, a lot of ways to get creatures into the graveyard or permanents into the graveyard and preferably ways to recur your Chupacabra Echo, Chupacabra Echo being the two-and-a-black, three-two, uh, ETB target creature gets minus descend, minus descend till end of turn. You could uh, be supporting Master's Guide Mural. Master's Guide Mural being uh, three white bl- uh, three white blue uh, artifact. ETB make a 4-4, four, four, and then you can spend seven mana and craft it with an artifact to turn it into a, a thing that taps to make a 4-4 four, four that you can only use if an artifact has entered the battlefield under your control this turn. You could be supporting twists and turns, the one mana green enchantment that uh, when it enters the battlefield, a creature explores, whenever you explore, you scry one, and then it flips into uh, like a search for Azkanta, but for creatures um, when you play your seventh land. That's going to want a pretty high creature count in your deck so that if you invest the mana in activating it in the late game, you'll reliably hit a creature and get paid for that mana. It looks like it's an explore theme card it really isn't you usually can flip it pretty quickly after you play it it's not going to make your explorer that much better most of the time and it's not like you need like the thing that it's doing the it's primary function in most games is flipping and finding creatures rather than powering up your explorer by adding scry to your explorer which just doesn't matter that much sunbird standard is another like uncommon build around that uh can kind of be your game plan. Uh, it's weird to talk about just like a Manalith as a game plan. Sunbird Standard is a three-mana artifact that taps for a mana of any color, and then you can craft it with any number of cards, and it becomes a creature with power and toughness equal to the number of different colors that were went into crafting it, and it taps for uh, mana of each color that went into tapping it, and it has haste and flying. This can be played kind of as an afterthought in a three or more color deck that needs some help with its mana but if you especially if you have multiples it can kind of be what you've drafted your deck around and like this five five haste vigilance flyer that taps for five mana can kind of be your end game if you're a five or you know pretty similar effect if you're a four color deck and that has its own desires um sunbridge standard really likes instants and sorceries of lots of different colors it likes instants and sorceries just because they're guaranteed to go to the graveyard immediately and it doesn't play very well with Descend. Like, it's fine, but it's awkward because you don't want to do it until very, very late when you can eat stuff without hurting your Descend cards because when you craft a bunch of cards in the graveyard, you're shrinking your graveyard. There are also a lot of rares and mythics that uh, you can meaningfully draft around in a control deck. Viewers of my stream have, for example, seen me draft around Bringer of the Last Gift a lot in my last few drafts that obviously wants like high creature count and a lot of self mill and ideally ways to remove stuff from your opponent's graveyard and not too much removal that isn't exile removal and stuff like that different cards are going to put different uh restrictions or requests on the composition of your deck and uh you really want to like when you're taking a card like master's guide mural think about like how many What's the minimum number of cards that fit with that theme do I want to play to be happy playing this card and how much overlap is there in those cards with other cards that I want in my deck and like can I fit all the different pieces into my deck if so how careful do I need to be to make that happen so it it can get tricky if you're not super focused and you're playing a lot of different colors i I mentioned cave matters cards as something that you could care about not all cave matters cards are created equal some need uh very different numbers of caves to work than others and some support like different game plans but in general there's some overlap between cave and self mill because milling can hit caves and caves in your graveyard count for most of your stuff that scales with caves so just something to be thinking about there where they kind of point to each other as for like commons that you should be thinking about for these kind of slower, more controlling decks, I would say, uh, white offers few splashable cards that are especially good without support for artifact stuff. Right, like a lot of white's strongest cards are things like the saw blades and the um, the five damage to an attacker that flips into a five five vehicle, and uh, the clay fired bricks. That um, finds a planes and games to life and flips into making two gnomes and giving your creatures plus one plus one, but both of those cards require uh, artifacts to craft with to make the most of them, and so that means you need to like have some artifacts around, uh, ideally in your graveyard that you want to craft with, and that's not going to like play very well with the descend stuff that mostly doesn't like artifacts because. Artifacts don't naturally put themselves in the graveyard. Sole exceptions, well, the sole exception to that specific thing being the puzzle door. Puzzle door is the best way to kind of glue together the um, descend stuff and the artifact stuff. Uh, There's like a base esper control situation that I think is like pretty good for merging some of the black stuff with some of the white and blue artifact stuff, but. I think, you know, all that stuff requires pretty careful planning outside of, uh, the like artifact crafty stuff white offers, I guess, like the cloud guard is just a generically functional card. You could put it in any deck. It's fine. The three, two flyer that makes a one, one. And then it also offers petrify and quicksand whirlpool as just like playable removal spells, but petrify is a little bit awkward. If you care about your graveyard, either for descend or sunbird standard or whatever, because it tends to just like hang out on the battlefield, and quicksand whirlpool does go to your graveyard but it's not a permanent it's a pretty solid removal spell for a control deck like if your opponent's attacking you you're often going to be able to kill stuff for 3 mana and it offers insurance against uh gods and stuff where you really need to exile but a lot of my decks um as i discussed in the descend episode when you care about the descend you really want to like minimize your instants and sorceries and so this wouldn't really necessarily be worth splashing for but it's a great card if you're like in the Sunbird standard spell control space, but that's still relatively few commons overall. Blue also mostly offers like strong instants, but also uh, good flying creatures at common. The card that's most, pull- most likely to pull me into blue just across all of my controlling decks is Sinuous Benthosaur, even though it's uncommon. Um, it's just very, very splashable and doesn't require that much commitment to caves. So it's a good kind of entry point into blue as a color because you don't need a lot of blue sources because it's good late and it's a good entry point into caves and as a strategy because you don't need very many caves and you're, you don't need them until late and it's a very powerful payoff for having this stuff. Black is probably my most played color. It offers a very good mix of like good removal, self-mill, recursion. It's very likely to care about descend, but it's potentially possible to avoid that. Tithing Blade specifically is interesting because it is a strong card, but it's relatively bad at supporting Descend because as an artifact, it just hangs out in play. And then crafting it is asking you to, you know, eat resources from your graveyard plays well in like an Esper kind of space, but I haven't I prioritize it less in my like green black kinds of decks. And then red has the least to offer for a control deck. You're basically looking at like a braid at common and then a few higher rarity cards that are nice splashes. Red does not have a lot of control tools. Uh, Calamitous cave in is another like thing. That's going to pull me into red when I'm in caves. And then green offers just like a very good mix of effects between poison dart frog, the one, one that taps from a color and has reach and can get that touch uh, Mind Shaft Spider, the 3-4 Reach that mills 2. Pathfinding Axe Jaw, the 4-3 Explore 1 Dinosaur. Nurturing Bristleback, the uh, Forest Cycler, 5-5 five, five that makes a 3-3. Three, three. Uh, I'm also like getting a lot more interested in Over the Edge over time. I've had good experiences with it now. I particularly value it in Best of 3. It's a very good sideboard card against the Artifact Decks. So those are, those are kind of, that's like most of the cards that I'm like thinking about in this space. So more importantly, uh, let's talk about how you're going to cast this stuff. This set has pretty weak fixing, so it's a little bit weird to like talk about drafting decks with a lot of colors. I know most people are mostly drafting two-color decks in this format, and it is simply true that the fixing in this set is not great. It's very hard to go into a draft planning to support a four or five-color deck because most of the cards that best let you do that are uncommons um and there aren't even that many of them for me i start assuming that i'm going to be two colors or two with a splash but when i see a thing that lets me potentially play more colors i recognize that as adding a lot of like potential just giving me a lot of room to pivot in the future so it's a relatively high upside pick early if i see something that might make it easy to cast more colors And the main card that's going to open that path up is Forgotten Monument, the uncommon cave that taps for colorless and gives your other caves the ability to tap for a mana of any color, uh, but at the cost of a life. This card is very, very strong, relatively low opportunity cost to play. As long as you have like six or more other caves, it's generally going to make your mana better rather than worse, even though it's a colorless land. And it usually goes very late, Um, this card uh, tables on average. And so once you have a forgotten monument, it's reasonably likely that you'll see another in the draft. But even if you don't, you can prioritize compass gnomes and scampering surveyors and uh, potentially even the um, card that I don't like to play very much, the green common that looks at six cards to uh, find a land to help dig for your monument. And then once a monument's in play, uh, assuming that you have some other caves, your mana's perfect. You can just cast literally any spell, um, kind of regardless of colored mana symbols, as long as you have a few other caves. And the fact that uh, gnomes and scampering surveyors exist means that you can kind of count on having your monument, even if you don't have that many monuments in your deck. So it's like pretty easy. To get a deck that has like four or five cards that are going to give you access to Forgotten Monument at which point you can cast all your spells. And then because Forgotten Monument wants you to just play whatever caves you can, you'll often end up with Promising Veins and Captivating Caves. Promising Vein being the cave that taps your colors and you can spend one and sack it to find a basic and Captivating Cave being the cave that you can spend one and tap it to get a man of any color. Uh, so you'll have some of those most of the time. And if you haven't found your monument, then those can go a long way toward like forgiving some of the ambition of trying to play all those colors and uh, letting you cast your spells uh, while you haven't found your monument. Monument is the cave currently that I generically value highest early in the draft as far as opening potential, just because it, it, it has the most transformative impact on your deck um, in terms of... Like what it allows your mana base to do. Captivating Cave does by itself fix for any color, but it only fixes, but it slows you down. Like it costs extra, it makes your spells cost extra mana, and it can only fix for a single colored pip. You generally don't want to get too ambitious with to splashing things that are double, but if your deck reliably has a lot of forgotten monuments, you can just play, you know, like you can splash a join the dead, uh, which costs 1 BB. Um, the common removal spell as your only black card, no problem. So as to the real point of all of this, which is how do you draft caves? The secret is uh, early in every draft, I'm always drafting caves. Um, I don't mean that I take every cave that I see, but there's not, for me, there's not some kind of like binary switch where like I'm either drafting caves or not drafting caves and it's on or off caves are always on my mind in this format in especially like throughout the first pack i I might decide that i'm not interested if i'm on a very very focused aggressive two color deck um, but anytime i'm playing uh an even somewhat controlling deck i recognize that there's a lot of potential to just like the power offered by caves and so Anytime I'm not giving up a lot by passing the other cards in the pack, I'll take a cave, some kind of cave support, cave payoff. Don't, Don't really care what it is. If it's in the cave space, it will either have a pretty high ceiling on its power level if I end up with a bunch of caves, or it'll make my other card, like my cave stuff more powerful if I have it. It just lets me use some powerful cards to start going down that path. And so, since I'm always kind of trying to draft to prioritize cards based on their ceiling rather than based on their floor because I get to draft to play them at their ceiling, most of the ca- the ceiling on most cave cards is going to be a lot higher than the ceiling on any kind of replaceable common. So, early in the pack, uh, you know, anytime like if you know when you're drafting in paper, at least I'll you know look through the pack and pull all the stuff I'm thinking about to the front. And basically, any cave at any point in the draft is gonna end up being one of those cards that like I want to at least consider in the pack. So while you're doing that or while I'm doing that and I'm taking these caves, uh, I'm taking them when it doesn't cost me a lot, and I'm not really changing the rest of my draft based on it very much. um so. Where, like, I I still have the deck that I'm currently drafting that's usually some kind of, like, focused linear two-color deck that has, uh, like, a core game plan that I'm pursuing. And then when there isn't something that fits the deck I'm trying to build toward there, then I'm also taking caves to potentially add this other element to it. And then each step into the cave the cave direction uh every additional cave you get every additional cave payoff you get further beckons you deeper into the cave it makes you want to prioritize the other stuff a little bit more highly and um you end up kind of smoothly descending into the cave zone where uh caves become uh, higher and higher priority among uh you know other cards that you could take over them and then once, you know, you end up with, you know, monuments and gnomes and surveyors and stuff such that you realize, oh, I'm actually going to be able to cast any spells I want, then, you know, you'll take any cave payoffs and throw them into your deck, and then also any good rares, and then any uncommons that play well with whatever your deck's trying to do, and in the end, you'll... You know, I still will usually try to have, you know, my early game, my like one, two and three drops be primarily in two colors, but then it might get a little crazy later where it's just like, yeah. And then for cards that cost four or more mana or three mana rares, I just ignore their color and put them in my deck and I'll be able to figure out how to cast them by then. So I I think the point here is... It's tough to discuss caves as their own archetype because X plus cave is a subset of most other archetypes and so the important thing to convey in how do you draft cave as an archetype or sub-archetype or whatever is you need to understand it's very similar to drafting any other lands. I think that the most similar situation is just like snow lands in sets that have snow payoffs. But for me, the exact same infrastructure applies to like lands collectively in limited where just like in general lands represent relatively high upside compared to replaceable commons because they, Add power to your deck in the land slot rather than the spell slot, and like you draft more cards than you play spells. So, if some of your picks can be upgrading your lands instead, that's free real estate. And caves are very much in that kind of space where you spend it, rewards players for identifying which picks they can afford to give up in terms of spells without really meaningfully lowering their spell quality so that they can increase their land quality to get like more value out of the draft. And so that same situation or reasoning or method to the extent that it is, uh, kind of applies to caves across a wide variety of archetypes. Again, there are different archetypes that are gonna get paid differently for caves. Uh, Descend synergizes better with caves than not Descend. And in general, the kind of payoff that caves offer is better in longer games. So slower archetypes value this more than faster archetypes. But the opportunity cost is generally pretty low uh, in terms of like deck building once you already have the uh, infrastructure drafted. So it's something that I'm generally going to be thinking about, like even if I'm drafting blue red, which is like generally going to be pretty aggressive. I'll still prioritize caves early, and I think that you can end up building relatively controlling blue-red with cave payoffs. And that's not always going to be better than the best fast blue-red aggressive decks. But I'm also not really making the fast blue-red aggressive deck worse by uh, drafting the caves because it's not like I'm going to be taking a cave over like an a braid or a tomb raider or something when I'm drafting blue red aggro. I guess this is to say my biggest advice on drafting caves is to have a really clear idea of which commons actually matter to you and which ones don't so that you can avoid using unnecessary picks on replaceable commons that aren't going to make your deck appreciably better and will likely just pad your sideboard because when you take these, things, like I've talked about it in the past as drafting scared where you take a replacement level card because you're worried that you're going to end up a little short and you might need that card. But if you just have faith that you're drafting the things that you're drafting because your seat's open, your seat being open means that you'll see enough of these things to build a deck. And therefore, you can afford to spend some picks on lands and on potential pivots and on high upside like cards that you could could move into. Then it's easier to recognize when you just don't need to take uh, a replacement level card. So I think in a lot of ways, learning to draft caves is less about understanding, oh yeah this is how the cave synergies work and more about understanding the archetype that you're drafting well enough to know which picks you can safely opt out of to take a cave instead. So as far as like the cave payoffs, I guess, since I'm discussing caves as an archetype, um, I should probably talk about like how this works. Right. So monument, as I mentioned, forgotten monument is the thing that lets you play cards of any colors, potentially play four or five color decks relatively seamlessly. And that's a payoff for having a bunch of caves. You can't play a monument without a bunch of other caves because it'll just be a colorless land. The Discover Caves themselves are nice to have some of, but in a lot of my cave decks, I'm almost less likely to sacrifice them than in my decks with fewer caves. Big part of the reason for that is Sinuous Benthosaur. If I have multiple benthosaurs, then my late game is often just like chaining benthosaurs into other spells, and I never want to sack my caves because I'm using all my mana on other stuff. Benthosaur, I think, is the best cave payoff, as I've mentioned, because uh, it doesn't ask you very much. If you have, like, it's disappointing, but, like, playable. Like, I wouldn't put it in my deck if I'm planning to only draw one card off of it, but, like, if I have to... Spend six mana and cast it and only draw one card because that's where we are in the game. It's not like a huge disaster. And then if you have two or more caves in play or your graveyard, it's going to be a good card. And then if you have, you know, a lot of caves, it's going to be broken. The black leech, the 5-5 five five lifelink, is... <sighs> Not good, but acceptable at like if you reliably have two caves by turn six. Like six mana five five life link is slightly below rate common. I would, and then five mana five five life link I think is actively good. So if I'm expecting to have three caves by five, but very likely to have two caves by six, I think it's playable in the deck. And then if you have more caves at any point, it you know gets actively good. Haven is going to depend a little bit on your deck, but is going to want a pretty good number of caves if it's only hitting, like, I think you really want it to be able to reliably hit three by turn five-ish, and it's nice if it scales up bigger than that. It's also good to be able to modulate how big it is so that it can kill your opponent's creatures and not yours. Splunking doesn't matter. Some cave die, like if I have a lot of caves and it fits well into my curve, I'll play it. But it's not a kind of card that I'm going to like take speculatively because I don't see it as ever being particularly high upside. Bat cave or uh, bat colony needs the most support. I think you need like nine or more caves uh, to want to play it. And it really helps if you have the ability to get white mana out of your cave so that you can uh, make three bats. Um, if you have like in the decks that have like twelve caves with two or three monuments, which I've had multiple times, then uh, that colony becomes like an, probably the best cave card. But you need to be extremely far into caves for that to be true. Uh, Scampering surveyor is just generally a fantastic card. It's a little bit like it's more of a cave. It's more of a cave than a cave payoff. And then the rare green. Five mana sorcery that finds caves and puts counters on things. Again, like, it's a little bit better if you have caves, but it's not really a cave payoff, although it is fantastic in cave decks. It's just, but it's just generally a good card. um And it, it wants you to have, like, at least one cave in your deck, but it's probably functional with one or two, but better with more. And I suppose those are the cave cards. I guess, like, they're. A few other uncommon caves, there's the cave that becomes a three three That's a pretty low priority for me. Play it if I have a lot of caves and uh it's not hurting my mana um it can be kinda nice, but it's rarely like game altering. hard to say exactly how those are gonna fit into any given deck again because this is such it's such a modular theme that it can be part of whatever and so the way that it wants to fit into whatever is not necessarily clear but i think i guess the most important point is really that caves because of monument vein and captivating cave make it pretty easy to play three to five colors depending on which of those and how many you have and everything else that goes into how many colors you can play um and then uh there are some cave related cards that you might want to splash but more importantly this set has a lot of strong rares and um a few strong uncommons and being in a position where you can just take all the best cards that you see uh can be very rewarding in this format but it can also be a very big trap if you end up recklessly merging synergies that ask for more support than you can afford to offer them when your deck has too many conflicting demands. So once you understand what I was saying about like safely and correctly drafting caves to give yourself options, the next skill to learn in drafting these multicolored decks is figuring out which specific synergies you can support and which cards that like don't necessarily directly align, you can afford to play together and find ways to like synergistically pair. I suppose another important note, uh, once you're trying to draft this like multicolor control pile, this format uh, is fast and cheap. Spells in this format are very good, and it's very easy to fall dangerously behind. Even and or especially the control decks want to have a low curve and prioritize good, cheap, interactive spells. Uh, stuff like Cogwork Wrestler, the blue one-two flash that gives a creature a minus two minus. Uh, is a very reasonable multicolor control card if you have reliable blue mana early. Um, You're looking for cards that are going to let you get to your late game, but you don't need a ton of expensive spells to win in the late game because a lot of late game stuff are single cards that can take over the whole game, like Master's Guide, Mural, and Twists and Turns. And then they just want you to have a lot of cheap support and generally low curve and there are very very few decks in this format that can get away with not just playing a ton of one and two mana spells. So, uh even while you're like playing cards that are designed to fix your mana and get you more mana and be strong in the late game, you still want to make sure that you're thinking a lot about your curve and uh drafting plenty of early game and respecting the aggression that's possible in this format i think that that i almost um kind of overlooked uh mentioning is i think one of the most important things to keep in mind is you you want to really 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 focus on cheap interaction cards like brackish blunder help get you the time you need to set up so your late game stuff can take over the other thing to note is. I'm still exploring the, like, low permanent high spell, like, Instant and Sorceries control decks. I have mostly been playing the Descend heavy control decks. I think there's a lot of potential to the Instant and Sorceries build that doesn't use the Descend stuff. But you do, like, when you commit to that, you give up a lot of uh, potential strong late game cards by not giving yourself access to not drafting in a way that you're prepared for powerful descend cards that you see later in the draft so it's a set of like you know risk reward cost benefit trade-offs that i haven't like properly figured out how to optimize personally yet and i have generally felt safer and more comfortable preparing myself for the descend stuff but i do like the idea of being able to play a deck that uses cards like a braid and quicksand whirlpool and out of air and unlucky drop and join the dead well and then maybe if you have like a bunch of the good efficient cheap removal spells you could actually play the um, uh, draw three discard one and uh, you know then kind of tie the room together with sunbird standard and this might still be a hoverstone pilgrim deck. In a kind of a more traditional library looping sort of way, where like in other formats, decks that loop their library typically won't like a lot of card draw and removal spells. This work and this format, they end up working differently for me so far. But I, I like the idea of exploring the spell stuff. But I can't. I don't quite feel comfortable speaking to how best to do it because uh, that's still stuff I'm experimenting with myself at this point. that's what i got so i'm gonna turn it over to twitch for questions but while i'm uh giving people chance to think about and uh write this for me i do want to thank the newest patrons of patreon.com slash drafting archetypes so thank you very much for your support mike sj pascal and draw really appreciate it if anyone else uh, is interested in joining the Patreon, uh, getting access to the various benefits, want to check out what those are, or just want to give back to, uh, I guess my editor, (laughs) me, for the work on this, Um, check out uh, patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. All right, questions. How do you approach building your mana base to make sure you can cast cheap spells on curve? Do the best you can. It's going to depend on uh, what kinds of things you have. Land cyclers help a tiny bit. Mulligans are pretty good. Uh, (laughs) I think um, a notable consideration about, like, when you're deep into the Forgotten Monument zone and you're just playing a lot of colors and you have, like, you know, three Forgotten Monuments and two ways to find them and maybe, like one or two Captivating Caves or Promising vein is one, if you have enough power in your deck, you can just expect that some portion of the opening hands, you're going to get, I guess, what we might call an LSV sample hand where uh, you have, you know, blue land, black land, red spell, red spell, green spell, and you just have to send it back and uh, hope that your next hand has a forgotten monument in it. Genuinely, the answer to how do I approach building my mana base is do the best I can. Um, Think about all the like different competing needs. And, uh, you know, you get so many total cards that give you each color and give each color the amount that it needs to make your deck function. And don't be afraid to mulligan with multicolored decks to make sure that you can play an early game. It's interesting that Cogbrook Wrestler is a good early way of interacting in multicolor decks because I had the card pegged as tempo only card early on. It needs other early creatures to be best. Yeah. Yes, it does uh, want other early creatures. The thing to remember about it is that it's less that it's going to be good to cast on turns one, two, and three, that there will be times when it can be productively be cast then, but more that it's going to let you double spell on turn four or five in a way that like potentially significantly changes the tempo of a game where you know you get into a spot where you're trading like a spider or an axe jaw or like some kind of 3-3 or whatever but then actually you save your thing while further developing your board and you did that without really needing to take a turn off of casting other spells so With, like, The Wrestler, it's less about, you know, early tempo and more about just being able to, like, catch up and kind of turn the tide in the mid-game. Best Descend card for a cave deck. I mean, best Descend card is weird because I assume there's some very high rarity strong Descend card that's just the strongest regardless of whether you're a cave deck. And then, like... I want to then take the question as, like, well, what's the best one for specifically enabling a cave deck? And then it's like, well, I guess probably the marionette because it mills you earliest to, like, get your cave synergies going. But, like, again, a cave deck, like, I kind of, the main thing I want to express is don't think of cave deck as expressing a coherent strategy like cave supports another thing rather than another thing supporting cave so the thing that your blue white cave deck wants is very different than the thing that your black white cave deck wants is different than the thing that your black green cave decks wants is different than the thing that your black red cave deck wants and so that's Yeah, I I think that's that's what I have to say about that. Am I more likely to run bad mana in this format compared to others? Well, I don't think that this format is particularly forgiving of bad mana. So, then the question is, given that I'm more likely to get punished for bad mana in this format than others. Why might I run worse mana in this format than others? And there is an answer to that, uh, too, I guess. The answers are there are very strong rares that would incentivize me to splash them and not very good fixing, which might incentivize me to splash them in questionable ways. So I guess I'm more likely to run bad mana just because I'm more likely to fail to have good mana while having sufficient incentive to, like, try to make it work anyway, but Because it's easy to get punished for it I would certainly try not to have bad mana and I can generally succeed at that. How do you deal with the life lost from the pain land? Well I play a good mix of lands of other colors and other sources of fixing such that I'm usually only taking damage from the pain land early in the game. And then once I get set up, I don't need to take very much damage from it. And so I only end up paying maybe three life over the course of the game. And also card quality. Theoretically, I just play good enough cards that I can afford to be down a little bit of life. Cave deck is almost always in a controlling shell, right? The cave part represents late game power and therefore is best in a controlling shell. Also. Tapped caves and colorless caves potentially disrupt early aggressive draws, so it's not great in an aggressive deck. That said, you can be kind of like proactive big mid range and still have space for caves. But, uh, yes, caves are usually in controlling shells, but that's kind of what I was talking about early in the podcast about how. There are a bunch of different conflicting sorts of endgames that you can be enabling um, that would all like caves, but that might not play well together and will want very different early game support. Does it Aggro have a general advantage against slower cave decks? In my experience, the times when I lose to it Aggro are the times when they have Captain Storm and I can't answer it, or zoetic glyph, and I can't answer it well. For the most part, I don't find is it aggro particularly threatening when they don't draw one of their best uncommons on perf. I don't know how often that translates to is it aggro being favored against these decks. But I, I do think like meaningfully when is it doesn't have one of those things, it's like pretty easy to Kind of like stop them from getting in early damage and take over the late game. Haven't seen you play many Cogwork Wrestlers in caves. Is that type of card too low payoff versus an aggro decks? So I don't tend to have a ton of blue cards in my cave decks. Um, I play blue a lot, but I'm usually splashing it. And Cogwork Wrestler I think is actually a reasonably high pick. And I'm not willing to fight for them. I think Cogwork Wrestler is a little bit better in the more like blue-white control, like blue-white base control places that like value the extra artifact around for crafting purposes and stuff. And yeah, I, I think I think to play Cogwork Wrestler, you want to have a decently high blue count because you do want to be able to be ready to use it in early game trades because once you get past turn four or five, I think that the board is kind of going to be like, stalled. you're trying to get to a point where the board is too stalled for Cargo crestler to be super likely to have an easy good use. Whereas like if you're ready to cast it on turns three and four, you can often get into that spot where there's just like one creature attacking into and trading with another creature. So there, there's like a really there's a narrow window window for Cargrick Wrestler to be at its best. It's very very strong in terms of swinging tempo in that window, but you don't want to like have it in a deck that, uh, you know, only has like five easy blue sources or something. All right, seeing none, I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Thanks especially to uh those who offered uh, questions. Appreciate everyone and. I'll be back next week for something else. Uh, m- more more, uh, Lost Caverns Vixelon coverage. I am certainly in a place in this format where I'm drafting differently than other people in a way that I'm getting rewarded for. And it makes it hard to explore other things, which is why I've covered a lot of like pretty related topics. I'm still hoping to branch out, but keep ending up in my drafts kind of getting pushed into the same direction. So we'll see where that leads. Have a good week, everyone, and I'll be back next week. Prepare for light speed.